This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 134. Today we speak about the Westminster Assembly Project with Chad Van Dixhorn. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. My name is Camden Busey, and I'm very pleased to welcome back to the program Nick Batzig, who is a church planter with the PCA just outside of Savannah, Georgia, in Richmond Hill. Welcome on, Nick. Thanks for coming on. Hey, Camden. Thanks for having me on. We're also pleased to welcome back another regular, Jeff Waddington, who is teacher of the congregation at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Ringo's, New Jersey. Hello, Jeff. Good morning to you. Good morning, Camden. Good to be here. <laughs> Guten Tag. <laughs> and uh, we have a very, and I, I'm not saying this uh, with any uh, phoniness, but we have a very special program today. We're very excited to have on Dr. Chad Van Dixorn, who is Associate Pastor at Grace Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Vienna, Virginia, as well as Senior Research Fellow at Wolfson College at the University of Cambridge. He's done extensive work on the Westminster Assembly and its minutes and documents. Thank you so much for joining us, Chad. It's, it really is a pleasure to have you on. Hey, Camden, Jeff, Nick, it's, it's nice to speak with you all. Well, we are very excited today because, as many of you know, uh, probably a majority of our listeners subscribe to the Westminster Standards or at least attend a church that does. I hope that's not uh, overestimating our listeners, but I would imagine that that was the case. Uh, no doubt many are familiar with the standards at least. Uh, but today we are going to be speaking about the Westminster Assembly and diving down into some of its history as well as uh, the documents and exploring uh, critically uh, the developments that, that gave rise to what has become the, the standard uh, theological treatment uh, for Presbyterians around the world. So as we begin, I want to just uh, start off with a very general question, uh, Chad, about the brief, uh, if you could uh, provide just a brief history of the Westminster Assembly and its responsibilities, when it was convened and for what purpose. Sure. And uh, the answer I give this morning would be different than it would have been a couple months ago. Really? Um, <laughs> the, uh, the Assembly uh, started... Uh, or or was called, rather, to try and fix the religious problems in England, which were, in turn, uh, a cause of the English Civil War. So the Long Parliament, as it's known, um, called uh, this gathering of uh, clergy with some uh, political observers who who, who did some things and made some speeches, but most most of theologians, um, to the Abbey in 1643, after a few aborted attempts to call the assembly after uh, over sort of an 18-month period. Uh, so they called the assembly and asked it to reform the church in its doctrine, liturgy, and government, um, which it uh, proceeded to do for the next, and this is, this is where the little extra twist is, for the next 11 years. I, I thought it ended in 1652 until this spring when I realized um, that although the assembly's records end in 52, the, the assembly trundled on to 53. So there you go, a little surprise. Huh. Well, it's wow. interesting to find out that even though this happened uh, 350 years ago, and we're still finding out new information and uncovering uh, different little tidbits that might have an impact uh, on how we understand these standards. Yeah, 
yeah, and an associate working with me on the project really sort of pushed me to find out why it should be ending in March of 1652, and there wasn't a good reason. So we started hunting around, and then I started reading newspapers, and uh, newspapers from the 1650s were 52, 53 were still reporting on the uh, what the assembly was doing. So there, there you go. Mm. Chad, is it true that the Directory of Public Worship was written first before the Confession and the Catechisms? And if so, um, did that intimate that reform and worship was of primary importance to the divines, um, even over against systematizing Protestant doctrine, in a sense? Uh, yeah, that, that, that's a good question. In terms of the uh, major work that they did, which project they would attack at which time, that wasn't actually left up to them at all. That was left up to Parliament. The Parliament would say work on worship or work on the 39 Articles. I mean, their first their first stab at reform was to revise the 39 Articles. Um, so doctrine was put first. Um, nonetheless, it might have been put first because uh, church government and issues regarding worship were so contentious that uh, it would, it would uh, cause problems in Parliament if they advanced those issues too early. So they asked the Assembly to work on the 39 Articles, um, which they did for the first few months until the Scots arrived. And the Scots were never fond of anything English. Uh, <laughs> so it was time to change tack. What, uh, now could you elaborate a little bit on that, that tension there? What, what was the original intent in revising or updating the 39 Articles? And uh, maybe for the listener who's un- un- unfamiliar, what was the Scots' problem with it? Well, um, the English... Uh, reformed in English people who are reformed um, were always uh, interested in proving that the 39 articles had a, a sort of a Calvinistic versus an Arminian perspective uh, and, and, and doctrine. Um, and so whenever there's a controversy, they always try and show that the 39 articles were, were reformed in their, in their intent and, and, and construct. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nonetheless, the first moment they had to revise it, it all these different issues come up would show that, that although they, they would uh, claim prior to the Westminster Assembly that these articles were reformed, they thought that a lot of clarification was needed, uh, and clarification meant significant change, additions, uh, and, and so forth. The Scots' uh, objection, I, I think, um, was that there's no document created by the Church of England uh, that they would accept, in part because the only time that they had been asked to accept English documents was under duress. They, they weren't asked at all. Uh, and so uh, the uh, Book of uh, Common Prayer, with some slight adjustments, had been foisted upon them in 1638. They strongly objected. Uh, there was no way, after uh, a revolt about uh, English worship, that people would easily accept uh, an English uh, series of articles. So I, I think it was just sensible for them to begin working on, on something different mm. uh, and not accepting an, a uniquely English product, product, whether theological or liturgical. Now who initially made up the assembly, and how were these people chosen? They uh, were chosen by members of Parliament. Uh, in the English political system at that time, each, each shire, each county, had two representatives— uh, the universities and the City of London also had representatives in Parliament. These representatives were allowed to nominate members from their own county, to, or, or theologians from their own county, the same number of theologians as there were politicians. Um, and so um, 
oh, excuse me, no, no, the same ratio uh, of, of of theologians to politicians. I'm, I'm now I'm now drawing. I'm, I'm just suddenly having a moment of uh, of lapsed memory here. Are there four politicians per four members of Parliament per shire mm. or two? Uh, anyway, this is not very interesting to you, but nonetheless, they're allowed to choose two theologians from each each shire. I see. Uh, with the qualification that if they couldn't find a good theologian from their county, they could pick one from another county. Really? And, uh, it was predicted that you know, some areas like Wales wouldn't have any good theologians. <laughs> Carl uh, Truman would be happy and, to know this. And so, uh, wow. and, and so they uh, they chose a, a much larger number. <laughs> it's one more one more uh, <laughs> cannonball in the armory of Carl Truman with that statement. Right. <laughs> now, I, I think my, Thomas would like to hear. Yeah, he wouldn't like to know that. Um, okay, uh, can I ask a question here? Go uh, ahead, given Jeff. The fa- given the fact that the the Welsh were uh, had problems, what was the role of the Scots commissioners, and what was the relation of of their role to the Solemn League and Covenant? Well, well, well. Technically, the Solemn League and Covenant is signed between England. Scotland and Ireland. Ireland's really just kind of an honorary uh, member at that last moment. There are no Irish uh, theologians there. Uh, there's sort of an, a nominal representative with with uh, uh, Joshua Hurl from Dublin, uh, but he is English by birth. Mm. Uh, simply simply taught there. So uh, Ireland's somewhat of, of a peripheral. What about, what about uh, James, was James Harris. Usher at all part of this? No, uh, Usher, Usher's not part of the assembly. He's invited. He was invited, okay. invited twice. Uh, and there's rumors that he even asked to be part of the assembly at one juncture. Great. Uh, after, after the war, the first of the three civil wars was ended. Um, nonetheless, he found it safer to be with the king <laughs> um, and, and, uh, and chose that option. Uh, the Solemn League and Covenant is, in a sense, the second... Um, constituting document of the assembly. The first one is the summoning ordinance. It lays out a, a few basic rules, um, emphasizes everywhere that Parliament is in charge, um, and that Parliament will sort of set the agenda. And it states the basic tasks of the assembly, this revision in, docu- in, in doctrine, worship, and government. The Solemn League and Covenant, uh, in a sense, supplements that by saying what we're going to do is we're going to create a a confession, a directory for catechizing, a directory for worship, um, and we're going to create some uniformity in these in, in doctrine, government, and worship between Scotland and England. And then again, as I say, at the last moment, they tacked on Ireland. Um, so it the the Solemn League and Covenant doesn't in itself require new documents, mm-hmm. but it's assumed by all parties that once the Scots arrive. The assembly will not be revising anymore. They will be creating documents. Right. And the Solemn League and Covenant, uh, along with just the Westminster Assembly in general, brings up the question of the relationship between the church and state. And many familiar with uh, American Presbyterianism will know that uh, some of these standards were revised in order to alter or change or or form um, more precisely how uh, Americans thought the church should relate to the state. What what does the Solemn League and Covenant, and also just the fact that Parliament called this assembly, what does that say for these theologians' understanding of the church and state relations? Yeah, bo- both Scottish and uh, English theologians, well, almost everyone at the time, Congregationalist or Presbyterian or Episcopalian, all 
all have a, an understanding of the magistrate that allows for a significant role um, of the magistrate in the affairs of the Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, the English parliamentarians, I mean, excuse me, English Puritans, had had no success in encouraging Reformation from the king or his court. They had had no success uh, in encouraging Reformation through the courts of the Church, uh, through convocation, which is the gathering of the clergy, there's an upper house and a lower house, uh, and certainly no hope through uh, direct appeals to the archbishop or other bishops. So they felt that if reform was going to happen, it had to happen uh, via Parliament. And and uh, in earlier parliaments, 1620s and so forth, there was always activism among Puritan parliamentarians, supported by, uh, and in many ways, encouraged by uh, Puritan clergy to get reform through Parliament. Mm-hmm. Uh, when when members of the Assembly and others were uh, lobbying Parliament to uh, to call an Assembly and to change the Church, they were very vague about the extent to which Parliament would be active in that reform. They all called for Parliament to begin the process. Uh, it becomes clear once Parliament does call the Assembly that there's a clash of visions. Parliament wants to continue to be very involved. The Assembly, um, the majority in the Assembly, wants Parliament, as it were, to sort of set the basic agenda, but then not to interfere with and, and heavily revise what the Assembly actually recommends. I see. Interesting. Once the uh, documents, the confession and the catechisms and the directory are written, what is the role of the assembly at that point? Once the documents we associate with the assembly are completed and approved, uh, what do they do? Once the confession and catechisms were written, um, the assembly was asked to return to an older project which was given to them, uh, which was defending the idea that the Church uh, was in charge of Church discipline. Ah, okay. There was a the conflict between the Assembly and Parliament came to a head in 1646 when the Assembly looked at Parliament's revision of their uh, Directory for Church Government and said, we, we don't like these revisions. This is really changing our vision of Church Government very substantially. And basically they said, we won't comply. Parliament was furious. Um, and uh, it considered all different sorts of penalties for the Assembly. In the end, they just subjected them to long, boring lectures about uh, what <laughs> Parliament had done to impudent clergy in, pre- in previous ages. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and then assigned them a bunch of queries or questions that they needed to answer, each one with sort of a sarta- sarcastic uh, edge to it. And uh, the Assembly worked on that for a bit, set it aside, wrote the confession, wrote the two catechisms, and then Parliament said, now get back to those queries. So that was the first thing that they attended to once the uh, catechism and, que- and uh, confession and catechisms were finished. Mm. But they never so, completed. Yeah. Uh, Chad, it, so that yep. it really is. Uh, I remember Sinclair Ferguson in his uh, uh, several years ago now lectures on the on the assembly uh, at Westminster Seminary, saying it was amazing how the circumstances surrounding the assembly they don't those things the turmoil I guess you would describe it as they they don't appear in the documents themselves 
And, and it's you've just added more detail to to that turmoil. The fact that they actually had uh, and then somewhat of an antagonistic relationship to the to the parliament. They weren't all buddy buddy. Very interesting. Right. Certainly not. There's there's that. There's some real challenges there between the assembly and parliament. And of course, uh, it, Dr. Ferguson's correct in saying these things. You just can't get a sense of all of this in reading the confession. But uh, the assembly wrote well more than a hundred documents. Um, uh, 140 sort of relatively significant ones. Um, and of course that turmoil shows up there in, in, uh, in color. All right. Well, uh, I think that's a great treatment of history, but before we run out of time, I want to keep ourselves on pace and start to dive down into exactly what you have been doing over the last uh, several years in terms of the Westminster assembly project um sure. what have you been doing in your research and uh what are some of the aims and uh, the goals that you have for this project well that, that's th- th- thank you that's a, a, a broad question a good question um what i'm interested in doing is providing or, or, or providing access to um assembly documents and it seems to me there's three big categories there's the minutes of the assembly so the records of the actual blow-by-blow debate votes of the assembly and so forth. There are the papers of the assembly, and then there are the writings of individual members of that assembly. I, my major efforts in the last 11 years have been on the uh, minutes and the papers of the assembly. And, and I'm, I'm really excited about what's, what's coming out. The, we often try and read the confession or catechisms in the light of of uh, other phrases that we'll find in these three documents. So if you see a reference to the light of nature in chapter one of the confession, you say, well, I wonder what they mean by that. Well, we can look to that. We can look at the catechisms here and see how they use it. Well, imagine having a hundred documents that you could look at. Mm-hmm. Well, through all of them, this, this expands the corpus of assembly literature for the average reader very considerably. Um, and so it helps us read these texts, I hope, uh, more thoughtfully. So, one one of the the uh, important parts of the edition that's coming out is uh, is the, the the papers of the assembly. The minutes have never been produced in full. Uh, these minutes are sort of not like normal minutes; they're recording conversations more than they are recording decisions. Um, and uh, there used to be two sets of minutes, the uh, and perhaps as many as three. Uh, most of those haven't survived, but we have something on, on, on every day of the assembly. So we have a, wow. a piece of something for each day. And they convened, if, They met more than a thousand times. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that's that's right. Uh, these yeah. have to be just massive. Yeah, they, yeah. They, I'm, I'm, it's sort of fourteen hundred to fifteen hundred times. Right. Uh, I don't have the number in front of me here. Um, and uh, I, I, a few weeks of the assembly is made up, uh, not with official minutes, but with John Lightfoot's journal. Uh, and of course, that's not as good as the real thing. That's one man's perspective. But com- with that journal and the minutes, we have records for every day. Um, the uh, the third part of what what we do, uh, and here I, I share my work with John Bauer, is to provide uh, readier access to manuscripts and printed works by Westminster divines, um, and that's. The Westminster Assembly project is going to shift in that direction now. Now that I'm wrapping up work 
on the minutes and papers. They're with the publisher. Uh, I'd now like to, to work on the, the writings of individual members. So um, we're creating a facsimile series of sort of paperback or hardbacks uh, of, of books by Westminster Divines. Mm. A lot of stuff that Sola Dea Gloria, Banner of Truth, and so forth haven't, haven't printed and aren't likely to do so. Um, we are finding manuscripts, typing them out, putting them online in searchable uh, versions. We are um, always looking for volunteers to be typing out books by Westminster Divines, again, to put a, um, a major database uh, online. And we're working with a major um, American university to do that. Um, and I can't just now mention the name of the university because we haven't finished sort of signing the paperwork with them. But we'll be uh, our site will link to their very substantial um, database, and one will be able to search either for just text in the Westminster Assembly Project or text uh, beyond that in the Reformed tradition. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. Chad, um, most of our listeners will be aware of that there were some division among assemblymen on certain issues like active imputed righteousness and. Um, I know Covenant Theology, you guys have put um, Edmund Calamy's uh, discourse on two covenants on your website. Um, for those that don't have access to Ebo, Early English Books Online, that is on, on your site, and very thankful for that. But um, I think that opens up a whole world of questions for many of us that we don't have access to the, the research. Will the papers and the minutes that are being published, will they, will they open up historical um, research as to who was on the committees, the discussions that ensued, things like uh, Stephen Marshall preaching the in, uh, infant baptism sermon and how those things affected the assembly and maybe opening up more of the differences that existed between individual members and then how they came to a unified um, a unified uh, statement, walking together, really going as far as they could. Will that, will that really open up a significant realm of research? Well, well, I well, I think so. Um, this edition is is going to open up new avenues in terms of just understanding the assembly. I think it'll be useful for biographers. It'll be useful for those who are trying to understand the development of these texts. Uh, if if the minutes and the papers are used together, um, the areas which remain the the most sparse are those behind the confession and catechisms. Um, the areas which are richest in their documentary uh, trail or, or, or traces are those regarding worship, church government, and the revision of the 39 articles. Um, so inferences need to be made from those discussions in, in reading later discussions. Um, nonetheless, I think with these, uh, I, I just did a sort of a, a test pilot on chapter one of the confession, just try to look at what I have in front of me, the minutes, the papers, and so forth. In what ways could I enrich this first chapter of the Confession? And it was, it was, it was very helpful for me. Uh, I think the same thing's going to be true for biographers, uh, that they're going to really find this uh, a real mine of information. And the same with uh, historians of theology. If you're interested in covenant theology, what the Assembly debates and what it doesn't debate should both be very significant. Um, and and the same with uh, you know discussions of justification and and, and so forth. So Certainly, I, I think this will be a, a a significant help for us. There's no real record like this, um, it perhaps 
certainly in the Reformation period, perhaps in the history of Christianity, a synod that's so well documented. You know, we want much more. It's sad how much has been lost. But the traces uh, of uh, argument and, and discussion that, that remain uh, are, 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 are extraordinary. Uh, another hot-button issue, you mentioned justification, and of course the imputation of Christ's righteousness, both active sure. and passive, was one of those issues. But another one that's that's come up in, in the last several years is this discussion of union with Christ and its position within the Ordo Salutis and relation yeah. to biblical theology and the Historia, etc. And we look at something like... Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, might not have as much explicitly in there as some theologians would like, but you look at the larger catechism, question 66, question 69, which the answer says, the communion and grace which the members of the invisible church have with Christ is their partaking of the virtue of his mediation in their justification, adoption, sanctification, and whatever else in this life manifests their union with him. Uh, what can we say for uh, the theology of many of the divines um, in terms of their theology of union with Christ, and do the minutes reveal any any debate or discussion on this? Um, yeah, t- two quick thoughts. The uh, larger catechism, uh, I think Bob Lessen has said this, certainly I, I think John Bauer has also. The larger catechism is the Assembly's sort of most mature theological statement. Um, and so it's useful to to look at the at, at that text as its sort of final statement on on a number of issues. Um, secondly, um, the minutes do comment on persons' perspectives on union with Christ. Um, George Walker talks about union with Christ more than some other divines. Um, some 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 simply don't don't get it and think it. Sounds like Oziander on the subject and so forth. Mm, so, right, right. Um, and the relationship. You know, what, what's this union look like? Um, what 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 aspect of Christ's righteousness, to pick one item, do we share in uh, with this union, and why? These are questions which are discussed. This will never be an easy text to read, mind you, uh, and it requires sort of a thoughtful search through and, and read through to sort of understand the discussions, but they are discussed there. Uh, but union with, with Christ is, is, of course, a commonplace in the writings of, of Puritans right. and, uh, and the members of the Assembly. One only has to look at Obadiah Sedgwick's bowels of tender mercy sealed in the everlasting covenant um, to see the, the important place that union with Christ has. It's just lost sometime in the 18th century in the Reformed world, but it's a commonplace in the 17th. Hmm. Chad, I had one last question um, for my part, and it had to do with the law and the understanding of the law in the um, the work of the assembly. They make those clear statements about the tripartite division, and they have you know very clear statements about the three uses of the law in the catechisms and whatnot. Um, sure. But the question of general equity has always been a sticky one to me because they say that the judicial laws, the sundry judicial laws, expired with the state of Israel. Um, except for the general equity and, you know, our theonomist friends try to cram the whole thing in there. I'm just wondering, was there any, was there any discussion of that? I've, I've searched high and low trying to find any kind of writing by any of the Puritans on general equity. And besides Perkins touching just briefly, um, I haven't found anything. Is there anything in the, in the papers or the minutes? Well, yeah, uh, 
I, I can't say off the top of my head. Um, that's a that's a that's that's a good question. It's a very precise one, and I would just have to begin searching to to be able to answer that. Um, okay. My, my memory, uh, unfortunately, doesn't doesn't extend to, um, to to thinking about phrases like that. Um, but we hope to provide the resources to make that possible. Right. Uh, right. Through the website and and through this edition, and certainly if there are references to general equity. Uh, and I simply can't recall that now. Uh, you'll find that in the index. Okay, very good. So that was sales pitch rather than help, wasn't it? <laughs> well, hey, it's good. We're looking forward to this stuff coming out. So we're we're excited about it. Uh, Chad, one more oh, one more great. question here uh, from a historical sure. theology uh, position before we we shift gears again. Uh, could you address the issue of the Irish Articles and maybe influence upon the Westminster? Assembly, and then also uh, the 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 influence that the Westminster Assembly and its products had on other uh, confessions, such as I don't know the Savoy Declaration or other things. Mm. What can we say for the Westminster Assembly uh, influences upon it, and then its own influence upon other other sure. statements? Well, the the Assembly obviously has before it many different confessions, and and in the Assembly's debates, they refer to these statements. Um, and uh, in an assembly paper, I'm just recalling now, um, th- they quote from collections of confessions and so forth. Um, so it's not surprising they have the Irish articles with them, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and there, are, there are similarities in places to, to those articles. Um, there are also very significant differences, both in, in arrangement and in content. The Irish articles get very precise in areas where it probably wasn't very wise to do so. Um, the uh, the assembly's impact on later uh, creedal formulations and the codification of theology is immense. It, the, the vocabulary of theological discourse changes after the assembly. Phrases which appear maybe once or twice prior to the assembly, uh, once once embedded in the confession of faith or catechisms, become commonplace. You'll you. You'll find them in sermons and books and titles and so forth. So there's, there's an immense impact, I think, on the way in which theology is stated and formulated after the Westminster Assembly. Um, and it would require, it, it would be almost impossible to document it with accuracy, <laughs> but, uh, but there, are, there are phrases which appear sort of 50 times more often um, in a given decade than they do before the assembly, simply because it's found in the Confession of Faith, we can be sure. Um, the Savoy Declaration and others are, are really just, just revisions, and with uh, a later Baptist confession, they're just revisions of the, the Confession of Faith, mm-hmm. uh, very obviously. Um, and uh, the Savoy Declaration it is, is, is probably doing so very deliberately, and so, so, is, the London ba- so is the later Baptist Confession. Um, this becomes sort of the the feel and the tone and the sound of orthodoxy, the closer you can, you can uh, approximate that in a later confession, the better as far as many people are concerned. Hmm. Now, uh, Chad, this, this has all been very interesting, so I'm sure our listeners are going to be uh, on the lookout for the release, the publication of the minutes and various other related publications. Do you have uh, any word as to when the uh, minutes will be released? 
<laughs> well, when I de- when I delivered this to the publisher, they asked me whether I had any sort of important deadlines that would be useful for them to try and meet them. I said, well, I started this before I'm, I was 30. It would be nice if it was done before I was 40, but they didn't really think that my birthday was a pressing issue. Um, oh, well. <laughs> so um, th- th- they've said that they expect it to be done. Well, they, they, they initially said uh, that it would be done in the summer of 2011, but then I added a couple hundred thousand extra words and, and oh. like to tell them that. So, so they're now thinking it might be a Christmas present in 2011. Rather okay. than uh, the so rather than the summer, so I see. you know if you're going to be getting your sleeping bag to uh, be out on the sidewalk in front of Borders uh, the <laughs> night before it's released, it, it could be a little chilly. It, it might not be your your summer campout. It might be a winter campout. Uh, now the the and that's is that Oxford University Press? It is. Okay, and how many volumes will that be? Well, again, that that still needs to be calculated. They're now thinking it might be seven or eight volumes. Oh my, that's um, excellent. It, uh, it it it'll be around. It'll be over a million words, um, and uh, with a couple different series of footnotes on each page, plus marginal notes, um, and a number of other sort of interesting features. It, it'll it'll take up a lot of. It'll consume a lot of pages. Um, right. I was just going to ask if there was anything that you would have our listeners um, read in preparation that you found find to be helpful that's already been published um, in Church History. I know there's a lot, but any um, short volume on the assembly that you would recommend to them? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I, there are volumes on the assembly I'd recommend. I don't, I don't know that anything is, is required sort of as pre-reading uh, to sort of prime the pump for the edition. Um, I, I think it's going to have the necessary apparatus to guide readers um, through both the assembly, its history, and, and the edition itself. Each, uh, each session is headed by a little introduction explaining what it's about. Documents have little summaries at the beginning to help guide readers, and they're arranged in chronological format and, and so forth. Um, so, so nothing to guide readers through the assembly or its minutes. Nonetheless, I've enjoyed the theological essays at the at the uh, the last part of Robert Lethem's new book on the assembly. Okay. Um, Robert Paul's older history of the assembly, although it's uh, a little overly focused on ecclesiology, uh, remains a a good introduction to the assembly, um, and uh, hopefully someday sort of a, a more thorough history of the assembly will be written. Hmm. Well, we look forward to all that. Of course, uh, we shouldn't neglect to mention uh, Bauer's book and the larger catechism, as oh. well as another edition uh, in this uh, in this series of uh, excellent works on the Westminster Assembly. Uh, but thank you so much for joining us today, Chad. We really appreciate you taking the time, and uh, I trust this is going to be just immensely helpful to our listeners. So thank you for your time today. Well, I hope so, and thank you very much. Thank you all. Well, let me uh, mention that you can visit the Westminster Assembly Project online at westminsterassembly.org. There you can read more uh, about the project, and uh, they have news and updates that you can read on the web or even subscribe to from RSS. A wealth of information there if you'd like to keep tabs on what is going on. 
Uh, of course, you can uh, visit us online at reformedforum.org. Uh, there you'll find information about all of our programs, uh, including uh, information about video and some other things that we're up to. Uh, that's all on the web. So thank you so much for listening. We hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center. <laughs>